Okay. Um, this week, although not, we don't have as many people here, it sort of marks a sort of a finish, uh, sort of an end, um, or I shouldn't say an end, more like the end of a chapter in the study of Daniel, although we've gone through five chapters. But um, after this week, the studies are going to make quite a drastic change because the first six, the first six chapters are all stories. They're all just simple, you know, well-packaged, you know, sugar-coated, easy-to-swallow, you know, story form in each chapter. But coming up to chapter 7 through chapter 12, it's going to be more heavy-duty stuff. But what we've studied in chapters 1 through 6, well, what we're going to finish in chapter 6 today will greatly enhance or to help us to get the proper perspective as we study the last few chapters. So, with that, um, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to go through chapter 6, and at the end of the study tonight, I'm going to do a little review. Not so much a review, but more of a, um, a summarization of the first six chapters with the proper perspective that will enable us to properly take the next step into the first, into the next few prophetic chapters. Alright, so why don't we go directly now to Daniel chapter 6. <coughs> Alright, chapter 6. Now, I do this every week, so we might as well continue. But what is it that you remember, or what is it that comes to mind when you think of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel the lion's den. This perhaps is the most famous chapter of this whole book. The whole book of Daniel. You know, most people, all they know about, all they know about Daniel is the lion's den. And um, chapter 6 is uh, actually a it's actually sort of in the center, and it's in the transitional portion between the first half and the second half of the book. So this, I believe, has somewhat of a, a bridge to the next section. So let's begin. Well, actually, let me ask one more, one more question. What else besides the Dan- Daniel in the lion's den is significant in this chapter? decree, okay. Prayer. Um, those are all good answers. Daniel's courage. Daniel's courage. That's very close to what I'm looking for, or what, what is, not so much what I'm looking for, but one of the other main points in this lesson. Yeah, it seemed to me that that's a really yeah. something to think about. That's right. And uh, we'll be touching on that. Um, actually, more of what I was thinking was Daniel's religious life. Or I, I use the words as sanctification. And we'll discuss that in a moment. So let's begin in chapter 6. And beginning verse 1 to verse 3. Can someone please read that for us? First three verses. 
Please, Darius, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over this three governors, and of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governor and satraps because an ex excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave vows to set him over the whole realm. Okay, this gives us a proper perspective, the setup of this story. Now, what just happened in the previous chapter? Okay. Now, what happened to Daniel in the previous chapter, right at the very end? After, after that. He was made third ruler, right? He was made the third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. Now, this is very strange. Don't tell me how, I mean, don't ask me how exactly this happened. I wasn't there. But somehow, in the transition of the old kingdom to the new kingdom, Daniel was not only, you know, preserved. Most of the people in higher positions in, in the old kingdom probably get hung or head cut, cut off. But Daniel, not only was his life preserved, but he was made one of the top rulers in the whole province, or the whole kingdom of Medo-Persia. Like I said, I don't know all the details, but this one thing I know. Somehow, something in the life of Daniel caused the Medo-Persians to be able to stand back and say, wait a second, we want that guy. We need him to work for us. And we see that he has what the Bible says here, an excellent spirit, so that we can place him in this high position. And it says here that there were 120 princes, or satraps. Above them were three, <coughs> according to the King James, it says presidents, or governors. So three people that governed 120 princes, princes. And of these three, Daniel was the first. And these three reported directly to the king. So Daniel actually got promoted in the, in the collapse of Babylon. He now is the second highest ruler, so to say. Now this is, this is very phenomenal. Very phenomenal. Can you imagine communist Russia being taken over and they keep the same you know, leadership? You know, that doesn't really happen. But Daniel, just the fact that he was preserved and kept at such a high position shows us that he was very capable, he was very faithful, and something about him caused the other nation to still want him to work for them. So that's, that's, the, that's the background. Now, if you were of the other Medo-Persian rulers, the governors and the princes, whatever, and you have just toiled, your, you have worked from the bottom of the ladder all the way up until you're in the present position that you have, and then you overtake this nation, and then their third in command becomes our second in command. Well, how do you think you would feel? Racist. <laughs> yeah, racist. And you would feel incredibly jealous, probably. Envious. So, that's exactly what happened. Let's look in... Let's read verse 4 to... Let's just go to verse 9. Verse 4 to verse 9. Somebody read that for us. the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, 
We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors, the princes, the counselors, and the captains, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. So this is, this is what happened. The princes and everyone, they were very jealous. They got upset at Daniel, so they had to have some way of getting rid of him, some way of just removing him from his office or, or killing him or something. So they came up with you know, all sorts of plans, probably. But very interesting what they could not do. They couldn't find anything wrong. They could not find anything wrong. Now, perhaps Mita Perjil is not as advanced as today, but if it was modern-day America or modern-day countries, what I feel is they would go to CIA, you know, FBI, tap all your phones, check where you, you know, your IP address for your internet, where websites you're going to, your bank account, how you spend your credit card. I mean, they will have 24-hour watch, and they will check all of your previous history, everything, to find just one place where you missed, you know, crossing a T or something. And then they'll catch you. But, I mean, these guys, they were, these were the top-ranking officials in the whole country. They said this, they, had, they themselves had to confess because he was faithful. There was no fault or error found in him. This is, this is what led them to the next, next part of their, their plan. That is that the only thing that we can really trap him using is his religion. Now, perhaps in your mind you're already cranking and thinking of present-day applications. I've heard it said once, um, I think this is sort of cute, I don't know if I completely buy into it just yet, but I heard a man, a, a father of one of my friends, he says he, he never breaks the speed limit. He prefers to drive five miles per hour slower than what the speed limit says. And I'm from California, you see. That's very irritating to me. But um, this is the reason he gave why he does that. He never breaks a speed limit because, he says, one day if the people come to try to find fault against me like they did to Daniel, I don't want to give them any reasons to find error or fault with me. And I thought and said, you know, that's probably the best reason I've ever heard anyone give for keeping the speed limit. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be law, but um, that's interesting. Because think about it. In your life, are there just little things that perhaps, you know, possibly is questionable? Because perhaps... You know, one of, the, one of these days it may find you out. Perhaps. I'm not saying that it will. But the next, the next point I want to make is this. That for the faithful people of God, there's nothing that can trap them except their faithfulness to God. 
Satan will be able to, Satan will say, you know, he will whisper in the ears of the opposers, the accusers, that religion is a way to make them fall. Because they're so faithful that they will not disobey their God. And in fact, if you read the book, I believe, Sanctified Life. If it's not Sanctified Life, it's Prophets and Kings. If it's not Prophets and Kings, it's something else. <clears throat> Some article that I can't remember. But it says that the devil whispered, or maybe not whispered, but the devil told these men that Daniel will not forsake his religion. And the devil knew that this would be the best way to trap him. And in the end times, in the end times, the exact same thing will happen. God's people will have come to a point of so, um, such a surrender that there's nothing in their life that people can say, you know, that's wrong, that's bad, that's, you know, we can get them for that. But because they're so faithful that people will be able to see if we can get them in the area of religion, then we've got them for sure. The same thing will happen in the last days. But now, the decree was signed. Now, this is the next point I want to bring up, and that is, <coughs> notice what the presidents or what these leaders told the king. In verse 7, it says, All the presidents of the kingdom... Excuse me, let's begin in verse 6. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, counselors, captains, have consulted together to establish a royal statute. Now this is, this is the gist of what's going on. The king basically, he said, all right, I appoint you to all these positions. You take care of the people and you rule and you take care of business and only come to me for the big stuff. Now all these people, sure, I think they're responsible to a certain degree. They gather together and they come to the king and they say, king, you know, we've discussed it amongst ourselves and you know, we took a survey or we caught wind from these people in the kingdom that they really want to do this thing. So we all just gathered together and we, we just wrote up this little, you know, this little uh, uh, temporary law that everybody seems so in favor of. You know, if you do this, you know, you can probably win the next election. Something like that. You know, all the, all the mess that you made and going to war with Iraq. I mean, Babylon. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> but, um, but you see, the, the, the tone of their voice is, this is what the people want. This is what the majority says we want to do. So with this, the, the king, obviously, being a very wise politician, obviously he says, oh, if everybody wants to do it, well, that's fine. So you see, it was a majority rule. It was not just a minority. If you think about it, it said all the presidents. And pretty, I'm pretty sure that the majority was on the side. You know, it, we can't prove that, but it does say all the presidents. They could be lying, but I tend to think that it's possible to have actually a majority against doing what's right. Now, the law is determined by the majority, isn't it? At least in a demo you know, democracy. And in this situation, the king succumbed to what the majority wants. Now, this is the next point, And that is that throughout history, has the majority ever been... Oh, I shouldn't say ever. Sometimes, perhaps, they have been. But... um. Is the majority usually right, based on history, in religious, in religious matters? Rarely, rarely. 
And the problem is that we seem to forget that. And uh, in the last days, believe it or not, it will be the majority versus a very, 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 very small minority. And the situation is going to be just like this in Daniel chapter 6. Everybody wants to do this. Everybody thinks it's okay. Everything, everybody thinks it's fine. So what can the people with the say to you know, pass a decree or sign the papers, what can they do? Nothing. Because this is what the majority wants. And there's nothing that the minority can do. Mm-hmm. It's also probably, I mean, on the face of it, it's a good idea at the time of civil turmoil. Sure. Are you going to talk about that? No. No, I, I didn't think about that. Uh-huh. Maybe stirring up trouble, maybe not stirring up trouble, but no one's quite sure. So just for 30 days, let's all take a time out from all of our individual religions. Not uh-huh. a permanent thing, but just let's all come together and affirm the new leadership. That's right. Very good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that exactly in those words, but very good point. So you see, this, and this brings the next point. This is not a permanent decree. It says 30 days. So... In the king's mind, you know, it's bound to just, you know, everything would just go over. You know, if this is good, well, we'll do it again. If not, that's fine, you see. So in the mind of the king, th- there's nothing wrong with this. And as Eric brought out, this could actually be a good thing politically for the whole nation, you see. So this is the problem. This is the scenario. So what does Daniel do? Let's look in verse 10. Let's read from verse 10. Um... Let's go to verse 15, 10 to 15. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God as he did at four times. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. All first not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself, and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king, and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is, that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. This is very is something that I should just make a note on. It was already it's been mentioned three times already in this chapter, and that is the characteristic of the law of Medo Persia. You see, there is a law about making laws in Medo Persia. And the simple law is this once you make a law, you can't change that law. Once a king signs it, it is deemed infallible. 
you can't change it, you can't undo it, you can't erase it, you can't, you know, just take it out. You can't amend the Constitution, so to say. And this is the problem with the king. He made this decree, and now he can't take it back. It's out of his power. And this also, just as a quick note, this is the Medo-Persians' claim to infallibility. This is one of the characteristics of Medo-Persia, claiming to have the characteristic of God, whereas they're just an institute of men. That's going to be important. Remember that. So, Medo-Persia, the law can't be changed. So now, when Daniel heard about this changing of the law, what did he do? Now, let me, he prayed three times, but let me ask the question this way. I guess I already spilled the beans. But the, but the, point, the point is that Daniel went to pray after he found out. It wasn't something that he didn't hear about and he just was, you know, they didn't keep it a secret and say, Psh, don't tell Daniel, see, we can trap him. It was more like Daniel knew and they knew that he knew, but they yet knew that he was still going to pray. So you see, Daniel, he was not, he was not scared of the situation. Now, you know, Jesus counsels us. I, mean, I know Daniel never met Jesus when he was on the earth, but Jesus said, he counseled, go play, pray in your closet, right? So now, if I were Daniel, I would take that counsel literally at this time. I would go and I would climb in my closet. I would pull my blanket over my head, you know, put some bolts and locks on the door, whatever. I would not open my window and pray. But why did he do that? Several things. The last four words of of verse 10. What does that say? As he did before. These four words is the key to the whole chapter, I believe. As he did before, as he did aforetime. You see, why is this the key? Because the key is that nothing changed. Think about this very, very carefully. Just, just think about this. As he did before, meaning nothing changed. Let me read it this way. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled down upon his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before God, as he's always done. Just as if nothing ever happened. Just as if the decree has never been passed. So you see, this is the secret. The secret to Daniel's courage, as we mentioned. His ability to stand in the face of trial is that his religious experience was such that when the crisis came, all he had to do was maintain. A lot of times we come into a hard spot in our lives, we feel down, depressed, and we feel like, oh, I just have to pray. Or we just spend nights weeping on our knees and reading the Bible, you know, a few extra minutes every day just to, just to you know, make those few steps up the celestial ladder, so to say. You know, just to make up for the times when we were a little bit lazy, maybe. You know, that's, that's a little, you know, exaggerated, maybe. Maybe not. But look at what Daniel did. When this, this crisis came, there was no way around it. Well, maybe, perhaps there was some way around it, but I don't believe so. All he did was do what he's always done. Preparation for the crisis does not take place at the crisis. And the preparation for the crisis is not like, 
you do just a little bit, little bit, little bit, and when the crisis is about to come, then you do the rest really fast, really, you know, you know, procrastinate to the last minute and then just really work hard at the last minute. No, 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 that doesn't work. The amount that Daniel prayed when he was in trouble was the same amount that he prayed the rest of his life. So for us, I mean, just this is a quick survey of your own spiritual life. The, 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 the time that you spend with God every day, the num- amount of time you pray, how much you study the Bible, uh, the Christian fellowship that you have, or ministry, whatever. If you were in Daniel's position, would that be the same amount that you would be doing these things? Would you still be studying the Bible the same amount as you are now, praying the same amount now, if there was a death decree upon your head, as it was with Daniel? Simple question, simple application. Now this, believe it or not, has greater application in just a moment. But now, what happened when these men came? Now, these guys, <coughs> they came to Daniel's window, they saw him praying there, and they waited a full day because they knew he prayed three times. Now these guys, I believe Daniel knew that they were watching him, I'm pretty sure. And I believe that's one of the reasons why he continued to pray with his window open. Because he knew that these guys are going to find out anyway if he's praying in his closet. He knew. They probably bugged his house or something. So he knew that there really was no way he can hide from these guys. So might as well be as faithful as I can to be a good witness. And that's exactly what I was going to say. That's probably what he said. I, I, can, I, mean, I can imagine Daniel kneeling on his window, praying for his oppressors, praying for his enemies like Jesus said we should. But yet, these guys, they went to the king. And you know what they said to the king? They did not say, this guy, he's not supporting our, our new you know, plan of action. He's not supporting our, our new government. He's saying, he is not faithful to you, king. He, they're casting all the blame on Daniel as if he was just totally, you know, dishonoring the king. You see what they said, you know, Daniel, that captive, O king, he does not regard the decree that you signed. He does not, dec- he does not regard you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't, he doesn't respect you really as much as you think, you see. So they turned the tables using Daniel in his actual act of loyalty, turning it into an accusation of disloyalty. And this is a problem, is it not? Because you can be as loyal as you, as you can, but when the people see with the eyes of that you're being disloyal when you're doing that which is loyal, you know, that, that's a problem. Now, what were you going to say? Mm-hmm. One more thing here. The, the only thing it says about his prayer is that he gave thanks. That's right. For his God. That, that's incredible to me. I would be praying, thanking God for us as praying, Dear God, please deliver me or someone else. Yeah, it's true. He gave thanks. And. Yeah, sure. Well, to be honest, should, should that not be our attitude every day? You know, for us, what is life? It's but a vapor. One day it is here, the next day it vanishes away. Men is as the grass, that when the sun rises it withers away. You see, our life is not worth anything. So, we should be like that. 
So when the oppression comes, sure, if it's God's will for me to go, it's His will for me to go. We don't have to wait until we're old to think that way. But sure, I, that probably has something to do with it. So now, this is what happened. They accused Daniel, just in one word, of being unpatriotic. Oh, that's a problematic word, isn't it? Living in this country, you know what I'm saying. But now you can, you can imagine easily how we can fit into the same situation now, can't we? But now, let's keep going. Um, we, we already read that the king, when he, was, he heard these words, he was sore displeased with himself. This is something that's also interesting. I did not get the quote, but um, the quotation somewhere, I think it might be in great controversy, it says something along the lines that there will be men in political office who will work to save God's people at the end of time. And we see here that the king, Darius, he's doing just that. He's bent on saving God's people. Now, very interesting, his response in a few more verses. But now, let's go to verse 16. To verse... Hmm, where should we go to? Let's go to verse 20. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, My your God, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own um, ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When the king, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion? Okay, we'll pause right there. So you see the king, he, he finally had to do what the law demanded him to do. But look at this, look at what he says. He says, Now the king spake unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now, I don't, I mean, I haven't found a statement in the spirit of prophecy. But Darius is exercising some faith here, is he not? And in the living God. Somewhat, huh? You remember the response of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3. The three Hebrew boys, he said, Who is this God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Whereas in chapter 6, you see Darius, or Darius, the God that you serve continually, He will deliver you. There's a marked change. Now, I'm making an assumption here, so don't quote me on this. But I believe Daniel had something to do with that. Daniel must have, through his life, through his actions, perhaps even explaining to you know, the king himself, perhaps the prophecies of Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, about how his God predicted that his nation, even naming Cyrus himself, would dis, you know, destroy Babylon. And through those experiences, this king is able to grasp the, the truths of heaven. So somehow he was able to, to grasp 
this concept. But it says here, the, it's repeated twice. What characteristic about Daniel's service to God is mentioned by the king twice? Served him continually. You see, this is another, we've already touched on this before, but this I see as perhaps you can say sort of the big picture or the theme of this chapter. That is that Daniel was faithful continually. He did as he did. He, you know, he, his religious life was as it was aforetime. It was consistent, continual, daily. And this is what happened. The king threw him into the, the lion's den. I'm not going to comment much on the rest of this. Uh, and the king fasted. I mean, can you believe it? A pagan king fasting for a Hebrew um, Hebrew uh, captive. But the, but the king came to the, um, came to the mouth of the lion's den. And what did the king call Daniel? What does he say? O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Right here we see in direct relationship, making them almost synonymous. Serving God continually equals being a servant of the living God. You see that? Keep that in your mind. Let's keep going. Verse 21. Let's just, let's just finish the chapter. 21 to 28. And someone just read that for us. This is packed. There's a lot. We're just, we're not covering everything. But, just a note, that when Daniel went into the den, the king sealed it. The king sealed the den. Now what does it mean to seal the opening of the den? It means this is final. This is what it's meant to be. This is the end. This is set. It's sealed. Now, when was the, another time that you remember something, a stone rolled over some opening and it was sealed? The grave of Christ, wasn't it? Hmm. Very interesting. Now, we're going to come back and touch on all these. We're going to tie up a lot of loose ends at the end. But let's look at a few verses. Please look in First Peter 
chapter 5, verse 8. Very good. Let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 33. <coughs> Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Very good. Now there's um, one more. Maybe we'll go there in a second. But based on First Peter, you know, what character in the Bible is likened to a lion? The devil. So you see Daniel here, he's thrust into a den of lions. He was thrust into a position where he was face to face, or so to say, he was directly tempted. He was able to be directly tempted by the devil, just face to face without, so to say, intercessor. He's, he's brought into this den, he's placed there just with no other source of help. And he is just, he is subject to the wrath, so to say, of, of the devil. There's nothing that anyone else can do to save him. That's the situation that he was placed in. So he was, he was thrust into this, this position of being in the heart of the earth, the, the den of lions, face to face with the devil. But yet, God sent his angel to shut the mouth of the lion. Why? Based on Hebrews 11, verse 33. Through faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please him. All of these things, we can, you know, if you just do a, just a study on, the, on faith, you can then see that through faith, they can stop the mouth of lions. That Daniel, through faith, stopped the mouth of lions. By faith in God, and God granting the answer, the request of faith, shut the mouth of lions, I should say, by his angel. And in the end, God preserved him, not a scratch. Nothing was, you know, he was not hurt because he was faithful. Now, these are all simple applications, but let's look at it this way. Now, Jesus, he came and he was just doing faithfully his work. But then the, the people cried, a majority decided to pass this law. We have no king but Caesar, crucify him. So the majority came together, really not really know, not even knowing what they want, crying out, crucify him. And the royal edict was, was made, and Jesus was crucified. And he was placed into, so to say, a den, a hole in the ground, put a stone on it and sealed it, meaning it should not be changed. But yet, after three days, Jesus came out, he was resurrected. So thus he was subjected from the time of Gethsemane until the end of his time in the grave. He was in the belly of the earth, so to say, sign of Jonah. He was under the direct assailant, assailing of the devil himself, face to face with the roaring lion. But then at the end, God was able to deliver him because he had conquered. He had conquered death through his sacrifice. Now how did he do that? through the faith of Jesus, his faith. And that faith was constant communion, day-to-day, -day, just, just consistent, continual you know, sacrifice and surrender and, and religious um, 
commitment to God the Father. That's called the faith of Jesus. And that led him to fulfill his, his duty as the Son of God, as the sacrifice, as the lamb that was slain. And thus, he was resurrected. And not, oh, more than that, Daniel, the people, the princes themselves had to confess, I find no fault in him. Just like Pilate said, I find no fault in Jesus. Daniel went through the same pattern of things that happened to Jesus Christ. But also, in the last days, there will be also a group of people that will be placed in the situation, this minority placed in a situation where the majority will rule and have all of this commotion to pass a, a law that conflicts with the minority's system of worship and their, and their convictions, religious convictions. And as a result, they will be condemned by the death decree. And they will be also thrust, thrust into this den of lions, in this position where they are face to face with the devil himself. A, pl- a time when there's no intercession, a time of trouble, you can say. But yet, because that they have been faithful and they had the faith of Jesus also, they will be delivered. I have a quotation here that I'll read in a moment, but let me finish tying this, this concept together. The people of Medo-Persia said, In Daniel, there is no error or no fault. You can look in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 5, I believe, the 144,000, the final remnant people of God. They have no fault before the throne of God. And also, these people, it says that they are the servants of the living God in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, I believe. So these Daniel is exhibiting characteristics of the 144,000. And the 144,000 will pass through this time, so to say, in the den of lions. He was, they will be directly assaulted by the agencies of the devil without so to say, an intercession in heaven mediating on behalf of their sins, but yet the Holy Spirit will still be with them because through their faith, God will be able to stop the mouth of lions. And in the end, they will be delivered. And the accuser will be cast down. The accusers of our brethren, they'll be cast down. Those that will kill by the sword will be slain by the sword. They'll be thrust um, back into the den which they prepared for the people of God. Thus, the Satan himself will be cast into the bottomless pit with a seal set upon it. That's a whole other study. But this is, the, this is the key point. What is the secret? What is the secret to Daniel? He served God continually as he did aforetime. How did Jesus do it? He served God faithfully continually as he did aforetime. So what do you think the secret is for God's people in the last days? We must serve God continually as Daniel and Jesus did aforetime. We must go through life daily committed, surrendering, um, willing to deny self and sacrifice for the cause of God as we go on this, this um, pilgrimage, you can say, to the heavenly kingdom. Now, this is a, a little side note, but look at verse 27. He delivereth and rescueth, and this King Darius talking, and he worketh signs and wonders, Where? in heaven and in earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, wait a second. Did God work signs in heaven? Did he? In this chapter? 
No, what is he talking about? I believe this is a note for people in the end times. This is a little note for those people that are a little sharp, sharp people, Bible students. He has delivereth, he delivereth and rescueth. When does he do that? Specifically, it says, when he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. If you look in Matthew chapter 24, signs in the sun, moon, and stars took place immediately after the tribulation, after 1798. You can look at the dates, uh, 1780, 1833. The signs in heaven and on earth have already taken place. And the promise is that he will deliver and he will rescue. In the last days, the people who are put into the same position as Daniel. Just a side note. But now, I have a few quotations here. Let me read them real quick. In Heavenly Places, page 26, it says, Sanctification is the work not of a day or of a year, but of a lifetime. Now let me explain what this means. Some people think a work of a lifetime means I will never reach sanctification. Sanctification is just this process that I have to toil and sweat over all the way until Jesus comes. That's not what it means when it says a work of a lifetime. A work of a lifetime means a constant surrender daily. It's a maintenance of a lifetime, you can say. Just like Daniel, he wasn't struggling all the way until the test came. He reached optimum and he maintained optimum until the crisis came and even through it, through the crisis. That's what it means, work of a lifetime. Now this next one, ML254, paragraph 3. ML, I believe, is my life today. It says, Daniel was a, excuse me here, Daniel was a devoted servant of the Most High. His long life was filled with noble deeds of service for his master. His purity of character and unwavering fidelity are equaled only by his humility of heart and his contrition before God. We repeat, the life of Daniel is an inspired illustration of true sanctification. So if you want to understand true sanctification, study the life of Daniel. In fact, there's a little book by Ellen White called The Sanctified Life, and half of the book is just talking about Daniel. True sanctification illustrated in the life of Daniel. And now, I was talking about in the den of lions, God was able to stop the mouth of the lions. Listen to this quotation. It's found in Great Controversy, page 631. The heavenly sentinels, faithful to their trust, continue their watch. Though a general decree has fixed a time when commandment keepers may be put to death, so we know we're talking about the same thing here, their enemies will come in some cases, anticipate the decree, and before the time specified will endeavor to take their lives. But none can pass the mighty guardian stationed above every, about every faithful soul. Some are assailed in their flight from cities and villages, but the swords raised against them break and fall powerless as a straw. Others are defended by angels in the form of men of war. This is the promise that we have when we're faithful, when we are continually serving God daily, even when the decree comes, God would then have the permission to send angels to protect. And the weapons will fall as as straw, broken and powerless. So now, as I said, after we've come through this chapter, we've gone through chapters 1 through 6. Let's tie some things together. The first study, what did we say was the theme of Daniel? What was the overall overarching umbrella that everything under Daniel falls under. Judgment. Now, I believe that Daniel, the first half and the second half, you can divide it neatly in half. 
stories and prophecies, but also the first half has a sub-theme that supports the main theme, and the second part also has a sub-theme that complement each other in, in, in supporting this main theme. So based in chapters 1 through 6, this is, a this is not a tricky question, it just requires some thought. Just think back over the first six chapters, what we've studied. What is it in these six chapters related with judgment that is in common? These six chapters, you can clump them together into one word that supports the concept of judgment. Does that question make sense? Should I rephrase it in another way? I know this... This is a tough. This is a tough question, but I just want to see you guys. I just want to see you guys. I just want to see you guys think. <clears throat> the first six chapters can be neatly categorized, or you can determine one central theme of these first six chapters. But the theme is not judgment. It's only a subset, you can say, of the concept of judgment. Something that all six chapters have in common. I've, I know this is, this is a tough question, and there, there could be potentially different answers. I mean, there's no right or wrong. I mean, the Bible doesn't say the first few chapters are talking about this. It doesn't say that. But we, I have mentioned before that the first, first six chapters describe how to be ready for judgment. That's not officially what I'm thinking of, but it could be, but it's related to that. Preparation of God's people to pass through the final judgment, but for what purpose? Okay, let me take one step further. What will be... Okay, let me just, based on this, this first six chapters, what was the result after every trial that came upon God's people? What happened to the name of God? It's glorified. Tim got the right answer. At least the one I'm looking for. God's name was vindicated through his people every time. Chapter 1, the three Hebrew boys, because they followed God's diet and his, and his will and his word, they became healthier. They, be, they were able to vindicate God's health principle or his, or his health um, standards. Chapter 2, Daniel was able to interpret the dream. He clearly vindicates God and says, in interpreting the dream. Nebuchadnezzar at the very end says, Indeed, truly, yours is a God and a revealer of secrets. Chapter 3, the faithfulness of the three Hebrew boys. In the end, Nebuchadnezzar said, Truly, there is no God that can deliver after this sort. Chapter 4, the whole chapter is talking about the vindication of the character of God. God has delivered me. He has humbled me. He is able to you know, humble those that are proud. Truly, this is a mighty God. Something along those lines. Chapter 5, God's prophecy was vindicated. This one is a. This one is. It's, it never says it specifically, but the word of God <coughs> that was written on the wall, God's writing was fulfilled. What He says, it came to pass. But more than that, in chapter five, we see the downfall of the kingdom of Babylon, right? Which was prophesied way before in the Book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. God vindicated His prophecy. He vindicated His word. And in chapter six, what we just went through. God again was vindicated. Because my people was faithful, now I am at liberty to save them. 
and then to bring to naught the accusations of the accusers. Vindication of the character of God. All the way throughout the first six chapters of Daniel, people, it's sure, it shows us the practical application of how to prepare to pass through the judgment. But even more important than that, what is the final result of the judgment? Why do we want to stand in the judgment? What is the big significance? What's the big deal about this judgment thing? The big deal is the character of God. Because, you see, salvation is not just being saved oneself. Excuse me. Christianity is not just the salvation of oneself. Christianity, at its very root, is to vindicate God's character. I shouldn't say at the very root, but one of the fundamental pillars of Christianity is to vindicate to show to the watching universe that God's claims and that God's, God's care and God's demands or His requests of us is indeed achievable. And that it is just. It is loving. It is the right thing. And that's the whole point of why God needs a generation of people that will be able to stand in the judgment so that in the last days, God will be able to point at them and say, See, Satan, all your accusations against me, they just proved you wrong. So then God can truly, finally, get rid of the sin problem. Because as long as there is one lingering accusation, one argument that has not been met, this great controversy will just keep going and going and going and going with no end in sight. So right now, what God is looking for are Daniel's, Shadrachs, Meshachs, Abednegoes that will be willing to stand for the right though the heavens fall and live the life of true sanctification as exemplified as we've seen in the first six chapters of Daniel. And thus when we come into that experience all of the rest of Daniel chapter 7 through 12 will all neatly fall into place because then we will see the time in which the judgment will take place but then we can see the purpose behind the judgment and also how we are to stand. So the book of Daniel, the concept of judgment, neatly packaged all into one with different portions. So, exactly an hour. Wow, I'm on time. Can I ask a question? Sure. The, um, the first king, the five. Uh-huh. Yeah, so what the king wrote is like a law that everybody has to keep or as different from the law. Let me read it. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is a living God and is steadfast forever, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall even shall be even unto the end. It could be a decree. It does say here, I make a decree. And it says that in every, domin- in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. It doesn't say that you have to worship the king or worship Daniel's God. It's simply fear and tremble is another old way of saying you must respect. You cannot blaspheme. You cannot persecute these people, so to say. Oh, yes. 
you see. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, you see in chapter 6, in chapter 6, this, um, the, it's a different nation. Chapter 6 is the nation of Medo-Persia. The kingdom of Babylon is no more. It's only like a state. So the laws that Babylon made, they don't bind. They're not binding anymore. So this is a whole new, whole new government. So this is a law. Based on this chapter, it sure sounds like it. Yeah. Why did he do that? Yeah. Well, the first question is, everybody that wanted to rescue Daniel at the beginning. To accuse him? I believe so. And then why the king did it? Well, even Daniel was, you know, saved by, I mean, God. Then it could be just that's it. But why the king wanted, you know, to kill all the because you see the king a couple of reasons perhaps now first of all I can't tell you for sure the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the king was thinking but this is my guess the king when he heard these men come before him and say you remember Daniel he doesn't respect you he you know continues to pray the king then in his mind automatically saw in fact if you read the spirit of prophecy in a sanctified life it says the king in a moment his eyes were opened to the to the um, to the plot that they had set the trap that they had set against Daniel, so automatically when they came to him with the accusation, he realized these people they're trying to trap Daniel. So he saw their ill motives. They saw that you know that they were trying to do damage. So in the end, he didn't want to have this type of people in his government. So he destroyed you know destroyed them. Probably, mm-hmm. it's not uncommon back then. Even probably in some countries today. Yep. So if there's any more questions, why don't we close and then you can ask me later. So why don't we kneel for prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you again for this story in Daniel chapter 6. We realize that we fall short so often of living our life, serving you continually, as Daniel did. Lord, as you went through this experience as an illustration of the true life of sanctification. I pray that we will follow in his footsteps, that we will be willing to stand for the right though the heavens fall, that we will not dodge um, things placed in our path that hinder our, our devotion to you, that we will maintain a high level of surrender and commitment to you every day of our lives, regardless of situations. I pray that you will guide us in these last days, for we know that perilous times are coming, and help us to be able to stand when the great question is asked. We love you, Lord, and please bless us this evening. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.